of parents who offer support and other kinds of support, Washington was number one. Washington parents are more likely to pay for things like Netflix and Spotify subscriptions. A category without Washington on top was states where parents were most likely to help pay off debt. Parents from New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and California, they led in that category. And in some states with notoriously high cost of living, places like New York, the study showed parents don't expect their kids to be financially independent until they're almost 26. The average age in New Mexico and Nevada was more like 23. Washington was sixth on that list with an average age of 25 when the parents think their kids should be on their own financially. Now, I understand things cost more money. Well, but isn't it true of every single generation of kids, young people, that you're paying a whole lot more for rent, for a car, for other expenses than your parents did. I think that's true in every single generation. But they say 84% of parents who financially support their kids say the support does not create resentment or tension. Do you know what I think it creates? I think it creates dependency. In other words, I was proud. At age 18, I'm out of here. I'm going to work on my own. I'm going to make my own living. I'm going to do it myself. That sense I don't find in too many young people. Now, I'm not saying that people in their teens and 20s today, that there aren't some of them who look at it that way. But I think an awful lot of people in their teens, late teens and 20s who are about to go out on their own, they've decided, nope, I need to have mom and dad as a crutch. I can't possibly do it on my own. And I just, I, for the life of me, I don't understand that kind of situation. They said 74% of parents who put contingencies on their help. Again, this creates dependency. Mom and dad are writing me a check, but they're going to tell me, where can I live? What can I do? And that was the thing. I mean, I knew kids who were from families that were very generous, and they, but they didn't try to be controlling. They didn't say, by the way, I'm going to help you out with some things, and therefore you're going to do what I tell you to do. But I think they were kids who behaved a bit differently. This is really bizarre. And when you have a group of people who reach their 40s and they're still dependent on mom and dad to help them out financially, what does that, I mean, what kind of citizens are those going to be? The kind of people who say, well, if the government decides to help me out, maybe I'll be more inclined to take that help. Whereas I knew people, I didn't know Ronald Reagan, but I certainly have read just about everything he's ever written. He was, he was the kind of guy who said, don't, don't take that kind of help from the government. Now, I understand the government is different than your parents, but when it comes to taking help assistance, it almost always comes with strings of one kind or another. And we talk about that on this program all the time, that if the federal government says, here, here's a grant to do things with your police or with your schools, the federal government almost always puts strings on it. When the state governments reach down to communities and say, we're going to help you out with your streets or your sidewalks. We're going to help you out with your schools. We're going to help you out with your police. But because we're writing the check, you're going to do it the way we tell you to do it. There are very few people who hand out cash without some contingencies attached. And as again, I have to say, one of the things that concerns me the most, the kind of person who would accept that help, that's the kind of person that may be exactly the kind of person that Klaus Schwab and the jokers at the WEF, the World Economic Forum, are talking about. The ones where they say, you will own nothing in the future and you will be happy about it. Well, if you get to your 40s and mom and dad are still paying the bills, you may not ever own a house. You may not ever start a business. You may not ever be fully independent. And when mom and dad are not able to help 
help you beyond your 40s, uh, then what happens then? Well, then you turn to the government. And you say, well, somebody has to help me out with this. I've never been able to do it on my own. And my parents told me, by this example, we don't think you're capable of doing it on your own. And imagine that message. Anyway, glad to get your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. As always, well, naysayers go to the head of the line, and I love getting the naysayers. If you're helping to pay your kids' bills, do you think you're actually helping them in the long run? And do you feel obligated to do it because everything costs more today? Or are you doing it because you want to control what your kids are doing? Just something to think about. Glad to be with you. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. show that makes a lot of sense a lot of nonsense right you're bloody well right you know he got a right to say this is the northwest nonsense how much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense that great moment every day where lars brings you the cold hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead fish wrapper or mainstream media bias governor tina kotek wants you to think she's busy solving the state's biggest problems even when she's not case in point the press release she sent out yesterday marking the end of the three-week strike by her unionized teacher buddies it's getting just the attention of the news media that kotek hoped for why the governor is going to next steps and what does it promise exactly i read it closely more money for union members who fund the politicians like tina kotek minimum salaries so that local communities and your representatives on the school board cannot make that decision themselves money 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 in literally the biggest best funded public education system in the world in a state where the poorly executed education of your kids costs almost twenty thousand dollars per student per year you know what Tina Kotek did not include in that press release? Anything about the actual education of your children. Any kind of plan to cut dropouts from schools. A plan to get more than the current 50% of kids to be proficient in core subjects. A plan to actually require reading and writing and arithmetic to earn a high school diploma. Currently, Oregon says you don't need to have to know how to do that to get a diploma. And when your kid's education fails, Tent City Tina has a perfect place for them to live out on the streets. John wrote in and said, Lars, I find it ironic that the same union members who bankrolled Measure 113, which attempts to disqualify lawmakers for 10 or more unexcused absences, and now are going to get back pay plus strike pay plus regular pay raises for their 11 unexcused absences, signed John. And now today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you completely insane? Red- 
ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. Find out right now. I want to give today's Daily Grill to Bill Gates and his development project in Woodenville, Washington. This is unbelievable. A longtime business, Molebacks, and I've got no connection to Molebacks other than I like private businesses that can stick around for, in Molebacks' case, about two-thirds of a century. So 15 years ago, Bill Gates' development company comes and says, we're going to redevelop Woodenville. We're going to make it look beautiful. And we want to have a garden district. Well, what better kind of business to have as the centerpiece of, of uh, that kind of garden district than Molbach's Home and Garden, a company that does landscaping, they do nurseries, they do furniture, they do all that stuff, and they've been there for two-thirds of a century. Now, you can say this about any business that's around for 67 years. They apparently know how to make a bottom line. So they agreed to sell the land to the developer without which the project can't happen. And everything is fine until the city of Woodenville gives its final approval of the project a few months ago. And then a couple of months later, guess what? Bill Gates Development Company tells Molbacks, by the way, you're out of here. We're kicking you to the curb with no explanation whatsoever. Tomorrow, I hope to talk to the folks from Molbacks about exactly what happened. And we'll reach out to Gates Development Project and see if they're willing to come in on why they're doing such a crazy thing. But they get today's Daily Grill. Today's best email. Always, well, you can always send more to talk at LarsLarson.com. But John says, Lars, it baffles me why the United States is providing humanitarian aid to Gaza. My opinion is no aid should be granted till all the hostages are released safely. By withholding aid, it would compel the Palestinians to force Hamas into hostage release protocol. Hamas is punishing the U.S. by holding on to the American hostages. Why were two Russian hostages released? Is it because Hamas is getting backdoor support from the Russians? My view, stop all humanitarian aid to Gaza till all the hostages are released. Signed, John. Here calls now. So a number of you apparently heard my comments about the new study that says Washington State is the number one state where parents support their kids financially into their 20s, their 30s, and even their early 40s. Joanne is a naysayer on that. Joanne, what do, what do you and I disagree about in that regard? Joanne? Hmm, hang on a second. Oh, I see what happened. There it is. Sorry about that. Joanne, sorry about the false start. What do you and I disagree about today? Oh, that's okay. Are you going to try to find Is well, that what? bad state of young people living with their parents still. Yeah. Oops, let me get you back. There you go. <laughs> yeah, do, you, they, do, you, I, do you agree with, with parents supporting their kids financially till they're in their 20s, 30s, or 40s? I absolutely hate it. And we're not fully doing that, but the situation when COVID hit really destroyed a lot of these young people's dynamics and projection. They were off to college. They were getting ready to have roommates and get up on their own and work in the retail business and supplement their own income. Well, when COVID hit and they shut the world down on, like, what is it, March 15th or 16th, something like that back in the day? Yep, in 2020. Who had, my son had already given two weeks' notice to his employer. The day before the shutdown was <laughs> the last day of his work. So... Everybody else that worked in that company was granted um, through the season. It was an athletic company. Granted uh, the season pay. Then they got unemployment. Mm -hmm. So they made a lot of money. But your your son yeah. quit. Did he quit to go to another job? No, he went to go to OSU to go to school. Oh, I see. So did he go off? So, and, well, he couldn't go to school then because the schools right. were shut down. Right. That's right. So he was packed up 
My 95-year-old mother was living with us. So he thought, okay, I'll get a job. Well, no, you don't go in and out of a house with a 95-year-old and not knowing what COVID was really about. So he was basically a prisoner. My mother was a prisoner. And uh, my husband was the only one who was really working at that time when I was taking care of my mom. So he kind of got in that weird niche where he had no choices. So we packed up, decided to take everyone to Southern Oregon, and uh, put my mom in a facility that allowed some freedom and mobility. He got a job right away, started taking classes online. OSU gave him the hardest time about getting on campus and getting tested for COVID and getting shot. They put him through hell, probably illegally. So he lived um, in the home, but it was in his own little area in the home, and got a job and proceeded to spend the next three years and a half getting his degree. Jobs right now will not pay for your um, insurance. So these kids... No, for what insurance? For, for health insurance? Yeah, health and dental, all those things. So Then, then you need to seek another kind of job because a good job comes with health insurance attached. You find a job that pays minimum wage full-time, you're a lucky person. Well, what is Everybody it, what knows that if you get paid full-time, you have to be given benefits. That right. is the law in Oregon. So when you look at Columbia Sportswear, you look at any of these companies that have lots of money, they are not going to hire very many people full-time. So you, then you try to put a schedule together. You got two schedules. Say, okay, I'm working part-time here, part-time there. You could not get a consistent schedule from either one of those companies. They bounce you all around. So how in the world can you consistently say, I can work for you 8 to 5 or 8 yeah. to 3 and you from 4 to 7? I get your point, but he does yeah. want to, At least he wants to get out of the house. He wants to make it on his own. What I'm talking about are all the many, many parents out there who are paying their kids' financial expenses. Why? Because their kids can't do it? I don't think you'd say that. But, Joanne, good naysayer call. Thanks for the call. It's it's Wednesday. It's my pleasure to be with you. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars Larson Show. Something Lars would say to the woke left. I hope that after today's city council meeting, you will pack your suitcase and get the hell out of my city. Well said. Thank you. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network, serving the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho for the past uh, 26 years, or uh, sorry, 24 years or so. Uh, glad to get your calls, too, but I want to talk to my friend Aaron Mesh. He's the news editor at Willamette well, Week. And Willamette Week has written a number of interesting stories this week that you can find at wweek.com. But in particular, this one about a war that is now erupted uh, between the idea of preservation of land for farming and things like that and development to actually build the houses that were short about 140,000 houses. Aaron, welcome back. Good to be here. You hearken back to Oregon Senate Bill 100, which I know the environmental greenies love, because I, you know, as you as as was written in the story, it says keeps the Willamette Valley from looking like Arizona's Salt River Valley, where Phoenix and its suburbs sprawl. Except that I think Senate Bill 100 has actually put Oregon in the economic doldrums right now, and and it has for a long time. How does this story line up? What who are the parties involved? So there are three major parties in this story. The first is a developer from Portland named Marty Kehoe, who has built uh, all kinds of housing all over Oregon. Uh, the second is and it's sort of a group of people, is the heirs to 
the fortune of Henry Meyer. Um, so his son Tim, uh, who recently died, uh, is the Tim is the founder of Kettle Foods, aka the kettle chips that you get in the grocery store. The the they're pretty delicious, actually, in my opinion. Yep. Um, they have a, they have a a thirty acre piece of farmland outside of Salem that Marty Kehoe wants to develop for housing, and that brings in the third party, which is the governor Tina Kotek, who has, uh, despite being a, uh, a liberal, despite being quite on the left, she has made it a priority to pave the way for additional housing in the Willamette Valley. So. Her goal is to is to I don't have the number in front of me, but we're short 140,000 homes in the state, and uh, it is her goal to to cut into that deficit uh, as quickly as possible. Which means that uh, that she has passed legislation and was planning to pass more that will aid Marty Kehoe's ability to take this bucolic farm and turn it into uh, the suburbs. Now, is it actually being operated as a farm, or is this more, more one of those hobby operations? Because you know um, the difference. I think, I, I think it would. I think it would actually be generous to describe this as a hobby farm at this point. It is a derelict property. Okay, so so nothing is being done with the property. Oregon Senate Bill One Hundred, you know, the land use law passed in seventy three, is largely what stands in the way. Everything that's grown out of that, the land use board of appeals and all the codes and all this other nonsense that that keep people from using the land for things it's needed for right now and responding to the marketplace. Instead, we say no, we're going to lock it up. Nobody's going to use it at all. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, in some ways, it, it pains me to applaud Governor Kotek, but I'll applaud the idea to say cut the red tape. Let's let's get through this and let's build what people actually need. Sure, uh, and I'm uh, I will be quite frank with you. I, I, I am inclined toward the same proposition. Um, I think that she is right. I think that we need to to be a little less precious about some of the properties that we're developing. Uh, and I think that there has been, and I don't think there's actually that much controversy about like the, the classic urban growth boundary questions that populate in Oregon. This is inside the urban growth boundary. This seems to be cut and dried. And yet there are plenty of people, not just environmentalists, but also people who live in the area surrounding this property who will be devastated when the trees, especially the old growth oak trees that have been on this property for uh, hundreds of years, Will be will be cut down. Um, that is the trade-off that we are making. It's a trade-off lots of places have made. It's a trade-off that my home state, Florida, made a long time ago. Uh, and say what you will about Florida, it has many flaws, but there is enough housing for people to live there. I guess what drives me crazy is that starting argument with if we didn't have government to keep us from doing these crazy things with land, we'd we'd look like a giant strip mall. Well, Aaron. I've been to Arizona. I've also been to Virginia. Virginia's arguably had Europeans uh, living on it, and now Americans, uh, for the better part of 400 years. And the place is drop-dead gorgeous. And I say, well, do you have any of those land-use laws? No. I mean, they have some zoning and codes, but it doesn't begin to compare to Oregon. You know, well, how how is it wasn't all laid waste and turned into shopping malls and parking lots? It just wasn't. You know, and, and this, so this idea that we've got this magic Senate Bill 100 that keeps us from becoming, you know, crazy overdeveloped, I think is, it, it's a canard. It, 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 it isn't supported by the facts. You know, I, I, I tend, certainly I agree that Virginia is quite beautiful. I'll start there. 
uh, one of the prettiest places I've ever been, uh, particularly the, the western part of Virginia, but the west end of the state. Um, having said that, when I think about the urban growth boundary, I think about the kind of ways in which Washington grows differently than Oregon. You can feel it when you cross the river, right? Like there's a difference in the way that the that the shopping districts and the and the housing tracks are developed. And I will tell you that, like, it, it seems to me like it's mostly an aesthetic question, not so much an like a um, a policy question. Is like, what do you, what do you like to live within? And uh, uh, I mean, personally, I don't care. But like, well, but I'm sure except does. that, Aaron, tell me this. Has, has, you know, for one of the most expensive places, you know, in the Northwest, it's notoriously expensive to buy housing. You say, why is that so? You say, because materials are about the same as anywhere else. Uh, labor may be a little bit higher. What's more expensive? The land and the government regulations. You say, well, we have to preserve all that land. And you say, okay, so we do it through urban growth boundaries. So you do to land, Oregon, what OPEC, what the OPEC oil cartel did to oil prices. They say, we're going to artificially limit how much can be used or sold, and then we're going to drive the price up through the roof. And you go, who does that benefit? Well, the people who already own land will benefit from it. Nobody else benefits from it, not the guy or gal who wants to rent a house or buy a house or even build a house because everything becomes more expensive. And then lay, lay about $100,000 in development costs that are just fees paid to the government. You know, like I'd almost rather deal with the mob than deal with the government because they come along and say, oh, you want to build a house there? Well, you're going to have to pay us $100,000. What do I get for that? Nothing. You just get the right to build on the piece of property you own. So you've got the OPEC treatment of land, and then you've got government acting like the uh, the trolls under the bridge and the three Billy Goats Gruff saying, you want to pass this way? Pay us a bunch of money. And, and, and then people wonder, why is it so expensive to build a house? I can tell you two reasons, cartel control of land and government excess. Well, one of the things that I very much agree with what you're saying, and I think there's some there's some general rhetoric that you use around government that appeals to your listeners and probably doesn't appeal to my readers. <laughs> but let's move past that for a moment into what I think is interesting is that who who does the government's policy benefit? Who does the regulation benefit? So I think there's always going to be government interference, intrusion, whatever word you want to use. Regulation is a word I prefer because it has, has less of a negative spin. There's always going to be regulation, but who does the regulation benefit? And I think in the case of Oregon's land use policies over the past at least 30 years that I've, that I've seen, the policies tend to benefit those who already own land. Yep. So, and it, and I think that it doesn't benefit those who would like to own land, who would like to have a part of this state who don't. Uh, and so I do think it's one of those cases in which Oregon is strangely – I want to be careful how I use this phrase because I'm not trying to provoke your listener – but it, Oregon is strangely conservative or, like, cautious around how it around how it builds. And I think that you see the result of that in how many people cannot afford homes in this state. Yeah, you know what? When, it's, when you say conservative that way, I think of – the guy is being conservative because he has a fridge full of food. He's sitting there starving to death at his dinner table. And there's a whole fridge full of food sitting right there. But he's told himself he's not allowed to eat it. That's what government regulation is for me. Aaron, thanks very much. You can find the story at wweek.com. I'll get to your calls in just a moment. And we'll talk about magic mushrooms, too.
everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden letter reaching down when the man comes around. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Our Twitter poll today, or X poll if you want to call it that. Do Joe Biden's rewards for terrorists encourage even more hostage taking? I thought the Wall Street Journal did a great job of laying out the list. So President Obama in 2009 broke with long-standing American practice, we don't negotiate with terrorists. He paid $1.5 million for three hostages taken by Iran. Guess who? And then, uh, and then in uh, 2014, five years later, he uh, gave some more rewards. Five terrorist leaders in exchange for one U.S. Army deserter by the name of Bo Bergdahl. And then in 2016, two years after that, he sent $1.7 billion to the Iranians, again, in exchange for five American hostages. And he also released seven jailed Iranians. And then Joe Biden decided to reward hostage takers. He exchanged an American for one of the world's most renowned criminal kingpins. And then, of course, he sent the rewards hostage takers message in 2023. He exchanged five people for $6 billion freed up for the Iranians, uh, Hamas, by the way, right now is slowly releasing its hostages and they are getting three convicted criminal terrorists released from jail for every one hostage they give up. I mean, they're working the better side of that deal as near as I can tell. They're a criminal organization and they ought to be wiped out. But do Joe Biden's rewards for terrorists encourage even more hostage taking? I'd vote yes in that. It's brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Let's go to Tim, who's a nace here. Hey, Tim, welcome to the program. What do you and I disagree about today? Uh, well, we kind of disagree about the um, helping kids, I guess, get on their feet into society, especially nowadays with the price of everything and and I mean it's hard enough for my wife and I to pay our our bills and mortgage and everything and um, and then I have four daughters and as they uh, have grown and moved out of the house, you know there's the cell phones, the the car insurance um, and we always helped with that while they were at the ha in the house and I was always on your side of it, I guess, and said, hey, you know, you need, you're 18, you need to pay your own bills, you're working. Make your own way. Wife. Yeah. What's that? You yeah, need to make your own way. way. And, and uh, my wife said, oh, you know, but it's, it's hard for them to be able to move out if they're paying, you know, these different bills and they can move out sooner. And I always fought against that. Um, well, let me ask you something. How many? How how late in life are you going to pay your kids' bills? Do you have any idea? Oh, um, you know, it seems to roll off around twenty-one. Uh, no, good luck with that, because they 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 are now saying that parents, Washington State, number one in America for p parents paying their kids' way you know, to some large degree, eight hundred bucks a month on average, up to their forties. There are people paying their kids' bills into their 40s. And when you say get on their feet, I guess what it makes me think of is, Tim, when I, when I didn't make much money, I had to make choices about how I spent that money. I didn't really want a roommate or two roommates. I had two roommates, but I had to because I had to do it 
and you make different choices. When mom and dad help you pay the bill, you don't have to make those choices. You you're you're you got more latitude, right? Right, and and like I said, I've I've always agreed with that, but just seeing how it's it's worked and they've, I guess, uh, wanted to uh, move out, like like you were saying earlier. You know, eighteen boy, I want to move out of mom and dad's house, and 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 uh, and then they do that and they find out, oh, that's you know harder than than I expected, and. And shoot, now I I can't afford you know phone bills. When you were Tim, when you were eighteen, was it hard to pay the bills? Yes. Did you learn how to get by on less when you had to pay your own bills? Yes. Are your daughters learning that? I think so. Um, Yeah, I believe they are. Um, If you stop paying their part of their bills, would they be able to make it on their own? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and 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 I mean like I said, you know, I think it's it's car insurance for two of them now. Uh like I said out of four of them, uh uh we're only helping two of them uh with car insurance and one of them with a cell phone and one of them's 20, one of them's 22. Um and you know, I I used to fight this tooth and nail myself and say, "Hey, you know, Pay your own way. I mean, we're struggling here just to make our own mortgage, and so why why should I help? But it it did, I think, help them move out sooner. It helped them move uh, out, but does it help them become independent? No. I mean, because there was probably a point where one of those daughters was trying to learn to ride a bike, and she had training wheels. But I bet she wanted to get rid of the training wheels as soon as she could. And you wanted her to be able to ride her bike all by herself and, and stay upright and not fall over. I mean, like Joe Biden does. I mean, he, he needs training wheels right now. But but the, the point is that he uh, that you say, we want you to be able to do it on your own. But if you tell your kids, you know, we know you can't do it on your own, so we're going to have to help you into your 20s or 30s or, or even 40s, uh, then you're telling your kids, I think, a disabling message. You can't do this on your own. You can't possibly. And if you say that, they'll probably meet your expectations. Back in a moment, it's uh, Wednesday, and it's a pleasure to be with you on the Radio Northwest Network. The Lord. Quiet, please. Ladies and gentlemen, you ready for the big show? In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Lars. This is the Lars Larson Show. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Live now. Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm glad to get to your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. If you happen to be a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You want to vote in our Twitter poll, you'll find it a couple of places on Twitter or X, if you want to call it that. Uh, I tend to call it Twitter instead. Uh, I may stick with that for a while. Who knows? Uh, But they did rename it X 
Uh, but you can find it at Lars Larson Show on X. You can also find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. I want to get into Joe Biden here in a moment and about the new cyber attacks that have been happening on American water supplies. But first, I want to go to Mike. Um, because I started off today talking about a new survey that shows that a stunning number of parents right now are paying the bills, part of their bills, a substantial part of, of the bills, of their adult children into their 20s, and believe it or not, into their 30s and even their 40s. And that as many as 50% of American parents right now believe that their kids should not have to pay the entire cost of uh, what the cost of getting along, you know, moving out and being on your own, paying your own way, that they shouldn't have to pay that uh, in their 20s or even their 30s or even their 40s. And I found that kind of stunning. And I also think it's kind of disabling to the kids. So uh, let me get Mike on first. Mike, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Well, Lars, I heard you talking about the parents paying for the kids so long. And um, I would just note that uh, I've also heard on your show about the uh, graduation rate and how much education these kids have. And it's like I know when I um, graduated from high school, I tried to get into a trade school, and they gave me all kinds of math tests and everything else. And I'm wondering if kids coming out of school nowadays are qualified to get a good job. That's what I'm thinking. No, I think they're qualified to get a bad job, and and there's a lesson in that. Mike, have you ever worked a bad job? Oh, I sure have, Lars. Now, I, I, I think it's even unfair for me to call it when I used to deliver newspapers. Was that a fun job? No. You, you were out in the rain a lot. Uh, it was usually after dark, either in the morning or in the evening, and uh, and it involved some physical effort. Okay, not the best job in the world. I also picked strawberries. You ever done that? I have done both those things, yep. And I picked beans as well. So in strawberries, you're down on your knees most of the time, and most of the time you're thinking, at some point in my life, I want to do any job available except picking strawberries. But those bad jobs have a tendency of doing two things. One, you figure out, I want to, as quickly as possible, leave the profession of picking strawberries and go to something else. And number two, in most jobs, you can figure out how to add some skills to your resume, whether it's formal skills like going through through high school uh, or or informal skills, learning how to do something that pays better than picking strawberries or delivering newspapers. Except if you never have to actually do that, you say, no, I'm going to be picky about the job that I want. I want it to pay six figures or you know high five figures. I want it to have all the benefits and, and generous vacation and time off and all of that. Then all of a sudden you're you're picky about the jobs. I think a bad job is a great way of telling you you need to add your skills, and then you figure out how to do that. Well, I, I would grant you some people are just plain lazy, some are unmotivated. But for me, I had a paper route too, and it was a situation where I got money. I could buy the kind of clothes I wanted and stuff like me too. that. Me too. So, yeah, and it's and so. Money is a big motivator, I'll grant you that. But I don't understand Can you think of a better one? That. Because, Mike, my, my theory about the world is that most of, of everything that happens in the world is driven by one or, or all three of uh, three factors. Money, sex, or power drive almost every decision in the world. Money, sex, or power. And so if you say, well, wh what would motivate 
a 20-something to find the skills to earn the living or constrain their spending to live within their means if mom and dad are paying part of the bill. No, I agree with that. Um, myself, I graduated from high school. I wanted to go to trade school, and they gave me a bunch of tests to see if I could. I wanted to become an electronic technician, and they they gave me all these math tests, and you know you had to know what you were doing. So I'm just wondering. Did if you make it? Correlation you, you've told us that story twice, Mike. But did you make it? Yeah, I wanted okay. to become a broadcast engineer, and I did. So yeah. Okay, so so that. That was a good move. So, but but you you went out and you figured out what your skill set was and where it could take you, and then you took it somewhere, right? That's right, exactly. So why not why not tell twenty and thirty year olds you need to do that? You say, but mom and dad, if you don't help me out with the bills every month, I can't drive the nice car I like. I can't live in the nice apartment. I might have to get a roommate. I might have to buy the cheap cell phone instead of the top of the line iPhone. I might have to make all those compromises. And if you say, oh, that's okay, honey, we'll pay part of the bill so you can have what you cannot earn. Does that seem well, like a good sounds, life lesson? No, no, and it sounds like, and I agree with you here. I think some people are unmotivated and some are lazy. Being hungry is a great that. motivator. And, and having to buy, <laughs> and like you, I wanted, you know, I wanted, when I was in high school, I don't wear Levi's anymore. I don't like the company. But I, I have the freedom to make that choice today. But I wanted a, you know, I wanted 501 blue jeans with the button-up fly, you know. And my dad was not inclined to pay that because, believe it or not, a pair of Levi's back then cost $13. He said, I'm not paying $13 for a pair of dungarees. And, you know, I thought that was kind of a narrow-minded view. But I went out and made the money, and, and then I used my money to buy what I wanted. But, but if I had not chosen to earn that money, I would have had more limited choices. Well, nowadays, a pair of Levi's costs about 45 bucks, Lars. I know. I know. It's tripled in price. And and at the same time, the minimum wage has gone up almost tenfold. So to do the math on that one. Because I hear people saying, well, you ought to be able to live on the minimum wage. Really? Are we the kind of country where people say, I want to be able to do the minimum and still have a comfortable life? I, 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 I think that's not very healthy. To say, I would like to have a comfortable life and put out minimal effort and have minimal skills. That's really well, reaching that's, that's, reaching for the stars? Well, that's, that's never been me, you know. And here again, I'm not arguing. I agree with you. There's lazy people out there. And um, I guess it has to do with your raising, upraising because... For myself, I grew up in a, uh, in a religious family, and I was taught that you had to uh, work hard to get ahead. Well, and let me ask you one quick question, because I know we're going to hit the break here. Were you, did your parents say, hey, Mike, you can stay here at home and live on us and eat at our dinner table uh, as long as you want? No, they never said that, but I never wanted to. I left home essentially the same night I graduated from high school. <laughs> and there you go. Mike, thanks very much. I appreciate the call. Glad to be with you on a Wednesday. Always glad to take your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarsen.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. And if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. You're listening to the Lars Larsen Show and the Radio Northwest Network.
House on Judcom. And now, a refresher on what diversity is. What in the hell's diversity? Well, I, I could be wrong, but I believe uh, diversity is an old, old wooden ship that was used during the Civil War era. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails. Before I get back to calls, i got to tell you about this. This, this to me, is absolutely stunning. Do you remember when... Almost two and a half years ago, the United States Congress decided to allocate tens, hundreds of billions of dollars in the Infrastructure Act. And part of that was seven and a half billion dollars to build tens of thousands of electric vehicle chargers across the country. Now, some of us, I would include myself in this group, said, why are we building the fueling stations for electric vehicles? Why don't we let the people who want to buy the heavily subsidized electric cars pay for their own charging stations? In the same way that the government did not subsidize the creation of hundreds of thousands of gas and diesel stations, we shouldn't be paying the taxpayers' money to build charging stations. So they allocated $7.5 billion in 2021, and they were supposed to build tens of thousands of electric vehicle chargers. Do you know that that program, now, this doesn't apply to all the other charges. From that program of $7.5 billion set aside by the U.S. Congress of taxpayer money, almost all of it from people who do not own an electric car, has built exactly zero car charges. There isn't a single car charger that has come out of the Biden administration's plan uh, passed in 2021 to spend $7.5 billion dollars. States and the charger industry blame the delays, this is from Politico, mostly on the labyrinth of new contracting and performance requirements they have to navigate to get the money. While federal officials have authorized more than $2 billion of the funds to be sent to the states, fewer than half of the states have even started to take the bids from the contractors to build the chargers. At some point in the future, they haven't even started construction. They haven't, half of them haven't even started taking bids yet. And yet you've got seven and a half billion dollars out there. And they say, oh, we're going to have the car chargers. Don't worry. Buy an electric car. If you buy it, the chargers will come. Well, so far they have not, despite billions of dollars allocated of your money to do it. Now to your calls. Uh, I started the show and mentioned that, uh, there's a brand new study out that says a striking number of American families continue to subsidize their adult children into their 20s, 30s, and even 40s and subsidize their existence so that they, uh, you know, they can make their way in the world. Let me go first to uh, Kathy. Hey, Kathy, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Well, hi, Lars. Um, I'm not so much a naysayer as a defender. Okay. Our 33-year-old son also lives at home, but uh, he actually helps us. We own a small family seasonal business, okay. and as you know, the economy is really hard out there, and we can't afford to give him all the hours that, you know, he's worth. And so uh, the other reason that he also lives at home is I've been almost dying since they were born. Oh, we have I'm three sorry. children. And 
health reasons, and I've also had a stroke and a heart attack, and he's afraid to leave. And, you know, he he stays home when I'm sick. He is my home care giver. And so he is helping our business and me on our health. And darn right, we're going to give him free rent. Can you tell me, is he ever going to move out on his own? And when he does, what skills will he have to get a job that will pay his way? Well, he's uh, learned all the parts of the business, and hopefully he'll take it over when my husband decides to tire. He's in his 60s, and uh, that's our hope there. And so far as vehicles and things, he owns a 2003 Wagoneer paid for, and, you know, he he's saving all his money. He has a huge down payment for a home if he ever does get married. Uh, he is being very responsible and loving to his parents at the same time. And that's a good thing. Sounds like you've got a great arrangement. I think I'm talking about the parents who are just subsidizing their kids, so it's an easier easier go for their kids. But thank you for the call. I appreciate it. Let's go to uh, Betty. Hey, Betty, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Thank you, Lars. I'm calling to add my commentary as well to the uh, any help that parents offer adult kids. I'm a grandmother of three girls. Each and every girl, as soon as they could, working two jobs, got out and found a situation to live in. Yep. In Bend, more often than not, you rent a room and you have a bathroom and kitchen privileges, and you're renting with three to five others to whom you're not related. So you're making some One real compromises that, that I'm sure, you know, any well, young person I'm, would I'm like to have their own place, those. but that, that, that they're living within their means, right? They are, but they're subject to risks and hazards that I never experienced when I got my first apartment. The one that was in Corvallis, one of the roommates was a party girl and brought coronavirus back to the household. The first one in Bend didn't do too badly. There was, um, there was some drug use, but it was kept out of doors. However, um, the, the two oldest now have Bachelor of Science degrees. They're well-educated. They both work two jobs. The youngest one is very excited to go out and get an apartment. She got a room, and within one month, uh, she was exposed to violence and drugs. And she was so she was so shocked she had never ex- been exposed to that. And she said, can I please come home? And my, my daughter-in-law said, yes, post-haste. Get, get here. They, they have helped my granddaughters, not because they're not industrious kids, they are, right. but the mounting costs, paying back the loans, paying the insurance, paying food, paying rent. So they kick in for the phones or they might kick in for auto insurance. But I want to just offer commentary that it's, there's always a, I should say, exception. Um, most of the young people, it's a struggle to find a place to live where you're safe, that you can't afford, and still pay your other bills. That's and I'm sure that's I'm sure that's the case. And Betty, I don't fault parents for helping some, but I was stunned when I saw that about 50 percent of parents in America believe they're going to have to help their their adult kids into their 30s. And that was the the survey, and that that seems I, surprising. That's wrong. I don't 
I yeah. think into the 30s, they have gone beyond the place where they need a crutch. And, and, and the, the lower end of that was Iowa at $369 a month. So we're talking about subsidy of, you know, close to four, uh, over $4,000 a year. And the high end of that was Washington State with the average subsidy, the average amount the parents are subsidizing their kids at $869 a month, which means there may be some parents who are only given 500 but there may be other parents who are shelling out $1,200 a month to help their kids live on their own, except they're really not living on their own. They're living on their own as long as mom and dad are paying a big chunk of the bills. Betty, thanks very much. I appreciate the call. Glad to get your calls, too, at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Naysayers always go to the head of the line. And your $7.5 billion for electric car chargers, that appears to be going exactly nowhere about now. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars Larson Show. A reminder, you are in control. Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'll tell you what I don't want. I don't want the World Health Organization or the Chinese Communists to tell us what to do. And before I go to Grover Norquist, who's our great friend, president of Americans for Tax Reform, to talk about the other things that the Chi-Coms are doing, I just saw word that one of America's institutions, I'm a type 2 diabetic, so I don't eat a lot of potato chips at all, uh, but Lay's Potato Chips has just agreed to limit the amount of sodium in the potato chips, you know, the salt that makes them taste good, uh, to come into compliance with World Health Organization standards. Not American standards, not even the estimable uh, CDC standards. No, they're going to come into compliance with the WHO. Yeah, it's it's the World Economic Forum and the One World uh, Global Order that are taking over right now. Grover, welcome back to the program. Absolutely. Good to be with you. And and in line with Lay's potato chips taking its orders from the Chinese Communist-controlled World Health Organization and limiting the salt in potato chips, now we've got the Chinese who are being sent American tax dollars so they can tell us not to eat cheeseburgers? Well, I think, first of all, the people who make these decisions at the national, international level, it's important that, that they have time off and not have to work as all the time, uh, they've got a 13-day conference um, over in Dubai. 13 days. You know, sometimes you might go to a conference, you know, Friday, Saturday, yep. uh, where you bring I've everybody from your industry together. Right, yep. okay. 13-day um, conference. And since you can't do all that, you know, that quickly, there's a six-day pre-conference before the 13-day conference. So people, the thousands of people flying in on their own private jets to tell the rest of us not to sit in um, uh, in, in normal planes uh, anymore. We should take buses or walk or live 15 minutes from anything we want to do the rest of our lives, um, the 15-minute city. This is what the world was like in the 1700s. Everything was a 15-minute city except <laughs> you didn't have the cars to get somewhere in 15 minutes. You had to walk. Um, so they're gonna. This conference is gonna help us fight 
climate change. Uh, but one of the things that they've really focused on that I think you and I have probably not spent as much time thinking about is certain countries, the United States being a wealthy country because we didn't let the world run us for so long, uh, we eat too much meat, you know, chicken and steak and pork and, and whatnot. Um, we need to learn to eat insects because they have protein too. Uh, now, China, however, doesn't need restrictions on how much meat it eats because it's a poor country. Now, the Communist Party headquartered guys, they eat as much meat as they want. But all the peasants out there, they don't eat a lot of meat. Um, so all the countries are getting together. Um, the, 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 you know, the, the beautiful people from all the countries in the world are getting together for 13 days, maybe, maybe 19 if you come for the early six days conference to make decisions about what you and I should eat in the United States and not, you know, tell everybody what to do, but, you know, uh, at least push the Americans around. And Biden think that's a, thinks that's a good idea. Kerry, uh, former Senator Kerry, thinks that's a good idea. He's probably flying in on one of his jets uh, to go to this event. Oh, you forgot. Uh, John doesn't own any jets, so he testified. Uh, but, but you know, you have to say, but he owns an interest in in a partnership that owns a jet. So, so John Kerry yeah. makes the distinction that he, Grover, doesn't actually own the jet. He just owns part of a company that happens to own a jet, right? I'm sorry. He doesn't own anything. He married money. His wife well, has jet. That, that is true. His he, wife has houses. He's, he's managed to do that twice. And Grover, here's what, what kills me about this. Americans have worked hard for hundreds of years to make a very prosperous country, arguably the most prosperous country on earth, you know, as a whole country. I'm not talking about the little oil rich, you know, places that have very few people and lots of oil. Uh, but I'm talking about a country that is prosperous and the most prosperous on earth. And I, I went to dinner, uh, Tina and I went to dinner with our, our neighbors, um, Isidoro, and, and he grew up in Greece. And we were literally sitting there enjoying a steak. And, uh, and he said, you know, when I was a kid, we had meat about twice a year, usually in, in conjunction with some holiday, usually a religious holiday. But I said literally twice a year. He said two, maybe three times a year. You know, Christmas for sure, you know, maybe Easter, but that was it. And, and, and so, so he comes here, builds a business, and then becomes a guy who can go order a steak if he wants to have a steak. Um, and now we're about to take the, the, the whole country and run it backwards until us having achieved prosperity. We're now all required to volunteer it in name of climate change to, to give well, it up. This is not, this is not a mistake. This is not a bug. This is a feature of how our betters intend to govern us. Unless you create shortages, you can't allocate resources through the state because as long as there's stuff out there to buy, everybody can go to the store and buy stuff. But as soon as you create a shortage artificially by telling people they can't look for oil anymore into the ground uh, or import it or uh, manufacture it or build a car that runs on gas, when you create shortages, then the only way to allocate it is for the government to come out and say, you can have one and you can have one. Then everybody looks to the government to tell them what they're allowed to do. And which is, of course, the people who run the government. They love the idea of being the most important guy in the room, the most important guy in the city. And that everybody has to come and say, thank you for letting you have things that in a free society, you just buy on your own uh, and you don't have to have it, you know, shared by this 
uh, with the state. So all of these shortages that we're running into, they're created. Remember the left used to tell us we were going to run out of oil, and that's why we had to let them uh, tell us how much energy to use? Well, yep. then it turns out with fracking and everything else, that was a lie. Peak oil that we were now run out. We weren't going to find any more oil in the history of the world anywhere. Um, there weren't, you know, uh, there wasn't new kinds of nuclear power that could give us almost endless amounts of power going forward. So they had to create something to force shortages since their previous ar argument was they lied and said there were going to be shortages. Therefore, everybody needs to get ready and start um, letting the government make these decisions. Now there's no shortages, so they've decided, well, having energy and meat and food, this is all bad for you. And then to help you out, here's what we'll do. We'll make all the decisions about who gets what. Uh, and Biden's adding one thing to this. When you worry about how we deal with China, which is busy threatening every one of its neighbors and us, um, Biden wants to take the corporate tax, the business tax in America, from 21% up to 28 China is 15 and 25 Okay, yep. We now have uh, lower taxes on some businesses than China does. Biden wants to raise taxes so that all American businesses will pay higher taxes than Chinese businesses. I would like to compete with China and France and every other country by having the lowest taxes and the least expensive regulations. Biden wants high taxes and high regulations so Americans will have to compete on the lowest wages available. That's not what we want to be doing. No, it's not at all what we want to be doing. Grover, thanks for the work you do at Americans for Tax Reform. I appreciate the time. Thank you. And what they're telling us, nations, you're over-consuming meat, so you have to cut back. Instead of simply teaching the rest of the people on the planet to be able to do just what America does. We grow so much food, we export food. We grow so much food, we literally pay millions, pay farmers to not grow food on millions of acres. And now, now the rest of the world and some of our elites are telling us we got to do less? No, that's not what Americans do. Back in a moment, 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. the opinion senator john kennedy on the washington establishment the washington establishment is working harder than an ugly stripper to cover up whatever happened this is the lars larson show Christmas tree, White House Christmas tree, when winds began to blow. Oh, Christmas tree, White House Christmas tree, you fell down just like Joe. With all your pagan ornaments, perhaps a message has been sent. Christmas tree, not a holiday tree. This lack of Christ must go. 
That's our great parody guy, the great Jim Gossett, singing about the White House Christmas tree, which you might have seen the news stories. It fell down. In other words, Joe Biden's White House can't even figure out how to put up a Christmas tree, knowing that it's going to be outside, knowing that occasionally the weather in Washington, D.C. gets a little bit on the breezy side. After all, the Atlantic is not too far away. And uh, it blew over and it fell down, just like Joe Biden has fallen down so many times. Glad to have you with me on a Wednesday. If you want to join the best conversation and talk journalism, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And the uh, Twitter poll today, do Joe Biden's rewards for terrorists encourage even more hostage-taking? Joe Biden now has a solid record of giving lots of rewards for especially Muslim terrorists who take hostages. We're continuing to do it now, and I think that puts all of us at greater risk. So I'd answer yes. You can answer it to at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com, brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Now, Kim is a naysayer on something I said. So, Kim, we love naysayers on this program. Welcome. What do you and I disagree about today? Well, first of all, I want to say I really appreciate your show, especially your conversations with Aaron Mish, and I respectfully disagree with your with uh, you and Aaron and the governor about changing the urban growth boundary without looking at some other solutions first. Can I? Do you mind if I tell my audience what? Because many of them don't know the term, but an urban growth boundary, in case you don't know, means that cities in Oregon are required to put a line around, you know, on the map around every municipal, every city, and they say this line with inside this line, you can build houses, you can build businesses, you can build all that. Outside the land, you for the most part can't build anything until we expand the urban growth boundary, and they do that. They say to artificially limit the supply of land. Now, in theory, every city is supposed to have 20 years worth of growth land around it. Uh, many cities don't. Uh, but but they And then they gradually move the line out, but it makes the land more expensive. So tell me why you think an urban growth boundary does anybody any good, and please tell us how it benefits us. Well, what I would like to say is I would like to review some other solutions first before we change those codes. Number one, uh, I live in Portland, and the homeless people I see, it mostly has to do with addiction. Now, Aaron said there's plenty of housing in Florida. Well, well, uh, drugs are not legal there, number one. And number there's still two, a lot of drugs like, there. They're, they're not legal. But but not Kim, like I agree here. with you on all that, but you're trying to dodge it. You, you brought up the urban growth boundary. Why is it a good idea to let the government artificially limit the supply of land for housing, making it in Portland horrendously expensive? Well, I think also part of the reason that it's expensive is because in my neighborhood we have a lot of short-term uh, rail units, and that would probably, I think we have 4,500 in my neighborhood, and that would probably cover a lot of the homeless. Um, well, cover them how? If there is, the governor says people. we need 140,000 housing units right now. The state is building about 20,000 a year, and we are behind. So if the marketplace is demanding 140,000 units, 4,500 units, even if we cleared out every person who's renting one of those short-term rentals, 4,500 does not fill when there's a demand for 140,000. I can do that kind of math. But, Kim, you still haven't well, no, told I, me 
Why is it a good idea for the government to limit the amount of land we can build on? I'm not. I'm saying they need to look at other solutions first. And if they use urban, uh, some urban areas, I would rather see them build on vineyards and not uh, old growth forests. Well, so, we're I mean, not building not on old growth forests, Kim. We're not building well, on old. Those are, those are old oak trees. I mean, I'm, believe me, Lars, I am not a greenie by any means. I but, understand. Um, but, but I really see, am concerned that you discuss this and you, and nobody ever talks about the other issues. Now, I would no. Be uh, hold on, hold on. If you listen to this show, Kim, which you say you do, we talk about drug addiction oh, as the primary cause for homelessness almost every day. It, it, if it comes up, I say yes. the primary cause of homelessness is not high rent or lack of housing. I, I, I don't make that argument. Idiots make that argument. Uh, that, that, oh, if this guy on meth on the side of the road who's living in a cardboard shack, if he, if he only had another hundred dollars, he'd be able to afford an apartment. No one, he'd, he'd, he'd afford another hundred dollars worth of meth. But what I don't understand is when one of the solutions is we have plenty of land. Do you know how much space, what percentage of Oregon is occupied by people and their businesses and their homes? I have a pretty good idea. I'm not. Do you say, give me give me a percent. Take a guess, and I'll tell you the real number. Take a guess. I would say eighteen percent. How about less than four percent? And it took us a hundred and fifty years to get to that. You got the Lars Larson show. The Lars. Quiet, please. Ladies and gentlemen, you ready for the big solo? In exactly 15 seconds, we'll be on the air. Lars. This is the Lars Larson Show. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Lars. No. Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails in just a moment. But I have to tell you something. Uh, one of my great heroes in history is Sir Winston Churchill. And every year there are dinners in his honor. One is called the Chartwell Dinner. One of the speakers there is Mr. Alan Saltman, who's an attorney and the author most recently of a brand new book called No Peace with Hitler, Why Churchill Chose to Fight World War II Alone Rather Than Negotiate with Germany. Now, I think most of you who have followed uh, world history at all would know the name of Neville Chamberlain. In fact, it's almost, uh, it's, it's, if you mention Chamberlain, you mention somebody who was open to appeasement. Appeasing uh, Hitler did not work. And as a result, Chamberlain was given the boot. Churchill was chosen as prime minister. And the rest is history. Churchill and his brilliance uh, brought about uh, basically saving the world. And, Mr. Saltman, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, and I'm glad to see that you're speaking at the Chartwell Dinner. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Thank you, Lars. I appreciate it. Well, since we have limited time, I want you to tell my audience why it was that Sir Winston Churchill refused to negotiate with Hitler, and then maybe after that comment on how that might bear on some of today's critical decisions that are being made by our current uh, crop of leaders. Okay. Let, let me let me get to the first thing. Uh in order to figure out why he did it, you really have to go back to his childhood. Uh, and in the book, which I wrote with the assistance of a psychiatrist, 
we we explore that very carefully. Uh, he had a, had a very very hard childhood. His father really disliked him and didn't think he would ever amount to much in London. He probably thought he was going to be a drunk sitting lying in the gutters of London. Uh, Churchill had a great deal to overcome, and uh, he had a great will to do that. Um, he also had a great urge to uh, prove to his father that he was uh, much more capable than his father ever believed. And that was a really driving factor uh, in his having to do something huge. And, and of course, he also had to overcome the stigma that uh, he was given after the Gallipoli disaster in uh, 1914 and 1915, um, where uh, he was held responsible for a fiasco where Britain lost in eight months just about as many troops as we lost in Vietnam in 12 years. Um, you put that together with a whole bunch of other things, and it explains why he needed to go forward and to prove something, that, as I said, that he was big and he was going to wage a war that seemed unwinnable. Uh, people thought he was crazy uh, because Hitler had just gone through Western Europe like a hot knife through butter, and Britain had no allies at the time. The United States was not in the war. And Churchill said, no, we are not going to negotiate a peace treaty. We are going to stand and fight against Hitler. So Now, in hindsight, that makes perfect sense. But is, is there a way of characterizing just how close Great Britain was under its leadership before they brought uh, uh, Sir Winston in? Uh, to simply saying, let's sue for peace. Let's sit down and see what kind of terms Hitler will give us, and we'll live on our knees. Well, the it really happened in the last week of May of 1940, uh, and the, the three big players uh, at the time, which were Churchill, Chamberlain, and Lord Halifax, the foreign secretary, when... Churchill became the uh, prime minister on May the 10th. Uh, they were pretty much agreed that they were going to fight the war to the end. What happened, though, is on that day, Germany also invaded France. And the, uh, the next couple of weeks, the war just went horribly for the French and, and for the British. And about the 25th of May, Lord Halifax had basically had enough and said, this is an unwinnable situation. Let's make a deal now while we still can. The uh, Churchill wouldn't hear of it. And to his credit, and this is somewhat surprising, uh, Chamberlain, uh, who, of course, two years earlier at uh, Munich uh, was at, at loggerheads with Churchill, Chamberlain stuck by Churchill and said, no, we are not going to capitulate. We are going to fight on. And uh, as I said, too much to his credit, uh, the two of them stood up. And, and on the 28th of May, 1940, saved democracy. And, and it happened that Churchill. quickly from, from May 10th to, to May 28th. It's a very short, not even three weeks. True, and I think if you 
really want to uh, we want to judge the the period when Churchill joined uh, Chamberlain's uh, cabinet. It was it was at the time of September first, uh, nineteen thirty nine, when Germany had invaded Poland, and reluctantly, uh, Chamberlain brought Winston into the uh, cabinet. Uh, one of the things he knew is that uh, Churchill had a great uh, uh, he had a great, great feel for war and was going to stand up to uh, Hitler. Uh, and he felt there was a political need for him to be in the cabinet. What I think surprised Chamberlain and probably surprised Churchill a bit is the fact that over an eight-month period, they grew from being very, very far apart to being extremely close and loyal to each other. And I don't think that's a story that is is particularly well told. Uh, it, it is covered in the book, and I, I think it is an amazing situation, frankly. I'm talking to Alan Saltman, who's an attorney. His brand-new book is called No Peace with Hitler, Why Churchill Chose to Fight World War II Alone Rather Than Negotiate with Germany. He's going to be speaking at the Chartwell Dinner, which honors Sir Winston Churchill. Since I've got a short period just in the last minute, how might that bear on today's decisions to do things like negotiating with terrorist groups and, and paying them monies oh, and, and giving up uh, con pe people who are locked up in prison in exchange for hostages? I've, I've been asked that question in one form or another several times. Not and surprised. I think that Winston Churchill would say, you have to be strong. Uh, I don't think uh, capitulation was not a part of his makeup. Uh, the the idea, which is sort of Reagan-esque, it seems to me, of, you know, stand firm with your uh, opponents or those people who are not, you know, the Russians, et cetera, uh, and be willing to negotiate, but negotiate out of strength. I, I think that's that came right from Winston Churchill, and I think it's still applicable here. Well, I wish we had some leaders like that today. My guest, Alan Saltman, he is the author of No Peace with Hitler, Why Churchill Chose to Fight World War II Alone Rather Than nego Negotiate with Germany. Mr. Saltman, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Back in a moment, we'll get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. To the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. I got to tell you, the latest stuff from Joe Biden, it is very clear that Joe Biden is serious that he wants to get reelected next year in the election in November. Now, I don't think there's a snowball's chance. In fact, I think, if anything, his own political party is going to try to find some excuse to kick him to the curb with his cooperation or without. But in the meantime, Joe is trying to make things as rosy as they can be. Now, he's got a stinking bad economy. He's got high energy prices that are only going to get higher. He's got a war going on in Ukraine, and we're funding that. 
He's got a real bad situation in the Hamas versus Israel terrorist attack versus civilized nation. And he's shelling out money there as well. And he may even end up with a conflict with China, perhaps even a shooting war. So what's he doing at home? He's got to make as many people happy as possible. So guess what he did? He's going to take your money. He's going to give it to pay off student loans for deadbeats who don't want to pay their own loans. And I'll stick by that definition. I know I sometimes get a pushback on it. And guess what he's done? He has sent 813,000 emails to the people who are borrowing the money, who are having their bills paid off for no good reason with your taxpayer cash. And he's saying, we're celebrating your student loan forgiveness. He's canceled out $127 billion in student debt. And now he's using the government's email system to send out 813,000 reminders to all those people out there, student loan borrowers, mostly young people, often young voters, uh, who are going to be told, yep, you got your loans canceled out, at least in part, and we're the ones who did it. Don't forget us at election time. I know he wishes he could actually say that in the emails, but... Uh, let me get to your uh, to the rest of the details on that in a moment. First, if you want to join the best conversation and talk journalism, it's always here at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. So the emails that were sent out, Epic Times got a hold of one of them. And here's what it is. A message for borrowers from President Joe Biden congratulating them on their debt forgiveness and urging them to share their stories of what this relief means to them. For too long, the email goes on, the student loan program failed to live up to its commitments and millions like you never got the relief you were owed because of errors and administrative failures. I vowed to fix that and I'm proud that my administration has delivered on the promise. More than 600,000 of the borrowers who are set to receive the email will have their remaining federal student loan debt entirely wiped out. Now, this is despite the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court told Joe Biden he had no legal authority to pay off those debts. So the White House first announced the mass debt cancellation totaling $39 billion just a few months ago in July, noting that hundreds of thousands of borrowers have been denied forgiveness they were entitled to due to errors and administrative failures. Those errors include the failure to give the borrowers proper credit for decades of payment under their income-driven repayment plans and loan services, services wrongful placement of certain borrowers in forbearance. In other words, they found any excuse they could possibly find to be able to simply say, we're going to wipe out the debt altogether. And now Joe Biden, just less than a year out from a general election in which he hopes to be reelected, is now telling those borrowers, we're going to wipe out that debt for you. And we're the ones who did it. And by the way, don't forget to uh, share uh, the good news with your friends and tell them how much it means to you that you've had your debt forgiven. As far as I'm concerned, if you went to college, if you borrowed the money, if you signed your name on the line and you were 18 years of age, you were an adult, you owe the money back. And having the people of America, 70% of whom have never had a shot at getting a college degree, 70%, and they're going to pay your bill for you. And Joe Biden is going to use this as a little political favor that I'm sure he'll be glad you remember at election time. Let's go to David. Hey, David, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. You heard me talking about Sir Winston Churchill just a moment ago with the author of that new Churchill book. What's on your mind? Well, sir, I just, 
watch the movie. It's a classic uh, DVD. New. One. It's called The Darkest Hour. I've seen it. It's a great. Of Winston Churchill. Have you seen it? Oh, I have. I've seen it. It's a very good depiction. It matches with the history as I know it. And I'm glad to read any book about Winston Churchill. He's one of the great heroes. I wish we had some leaders like that today who said we're not going to try to appease people. Uh, you know, if, if somebody decides to attack you, if they threaten you, you shouldn't try to appease them. Sadly, we got people like Joe Biden who's tried to appease the Iranians. He's tried to appease Hamas. He's trying to appease the Palestinians. And how do you suppose that's working out for him about now? Well, in the words of Winston Churchill, when he spoke before his party, uh, before things came to a final end, he did make the, state, the statement because of his strength, you cannot deal with the lion when your head is in the mouth <laughs> of the lion. <laughs> that's a good one. And I'll tell you what, I'll quote Churchill when it comes to Joe Biden. Joe Biden is a humble man, and he has much to be humble about. David, thanks very much. I appreciate the call. Let's go to Stuart. Hey, Stuart, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars. I hate to change the subject, though. I was going to go right. back to go for it. Yeah, we'll see. I have a lot of experience of homelessness. It was a long time ago, but I think there's an aspect of it that is being, like, uh, missed. Uh, and to just sum it all up, let me, give me just uh, half a minute, and I'll, let me take you back. Okay, to the 1990s, when I became homeless, the problem was, basically, was um, every time the economy shuts down the problem, construction workers like me, there's a slowdown, okay? And uh, we were being replaced heavily at the time by the illegal workers from south of the border, okay? The whole crews would be like, it was like musical chairs every time there's a slowdown. But this is the problem. So a lot of us got bumped out, and... Um, well, what I used to identify it was, was was the visible homeless and the invisible homeless. We were the invisibles. Everybody saw the people on the streets in the tents like we have nowadays, and now it's like 99% them. But um, see, a lot of us now from all the old times, we've managed to get our, find our way forward, you know? And like, well, hey, hold on. You're going to have to tell me what that means. If you're invisible, does that mean you're staying at somebody else's well, house, you're couch surfing, you're staying with a buddy? Is that how you got by? Yeah. We would be at the um, at the temp company at six in the morning, waiting for a, be in the library. If we didn't get a job, we would be in our car or something, or in a um, you know um, a rescue mission like actually the compass center. All those guys seem to be sober and looking for work, you know. And and you know, but this is the problem though. So you get bounced out for just a little bit, and. Um, then you don't have a continuous rental history anymore, okay? One thing, yeah. all your jobs are going to the illegals, okay? So the jobs, wages are depressed, wage, jobs are scarce due to this influx of the illegals, okay? In construction, see, I'm stuck, you know? And yeah. um, uh, so, and, and then there's this hurdle that, well, if you don't have, and then the rents all go up at the same time with the influx of tech workers in, in the late 90s is when it really got booming, and then there was the dot-com collapse. It was right after the dot-com collapse is what kind of is when I ended up like Stuart, that. I got to get, get you to the final point because we're heading to a break right now. So the element is, is now I see a certain amount of homeless who are actually just sober people, but they make, say, too much to um, apply for assistance, 
um, because they work, but they don't make enough to pay rent. And even if they make enough to pay rent, they can't rent a, a unit from a lot of people because there's a management company that says, no, you don't have a continuous rental history. That's an interesting point. Stuart, thanks very much. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails, talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars Larson Show. Lots of folks worry about their firearms, but Lars doesn't have to worry about Biden taking his guns. He stores them upstairs. This is the Lars Larson Show. Big iron on his Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. I want to welcome Senator Ted Budd from North Carolina and talk to him a bit about Hamas and why the U.S. isn't putting more pressure on some of our so-called allies, like Qatar or Qatar, whichever way you want to say it, uh, to, to uh, put some pressure on the leaders of Hamas, who, by the way, if you didn't know already, are not on the Gaza Strip. They're living in luxury down in Qatar or Qatar. Uh, Senator Budd, welcome back. Great to be here, Lars. Thanks for having now, me. I've outlined, I've outlined the situation properly, haven't I? Qatar uh, or Qatar is one of our alleged allies, or we at least get along well with them on various issues, and they're kind of handy when it comes to fighting terrorism, that sort of thing. But they're letting the leaders of Hamas sit there in Doha, Qatar, uh, while, while the organization is holding hostages, including Americans. Well, absolutely. I would encourage your listeners uh, to go back and listen to the speech that I gave uh, last night on the Senate floor, pointing out that, look, we are friends. They, they host a, a, a great uh, military base force. It's so important in an often contested region of the world. But sometimes uh, friends got to be honest with one another. And what we're seeing is them speak out of both sides of their mouth. On one hand, they're saying that, uh, okay, we're a U.S. ally. We're going to commit to negotiate a resolution to the hostage crisis. But on the other hand, Lars, they're, they're blaming Israel and absolving Hamas at every turn. They're allowing their leaders to be there in luxury. And then when we push back on it, they say, well, you know, the U.S. wanted us to host a political office for Hamas. By the way, that happened under Biden. Yep. And it, it, this is not, excuse me, it happened under Obama, but that's not what we want now. You know, the, you know we shouldn't let them host uh, the aggressors and the, the folks and the terrorists right now. This is a very different deal. It's, well, it's time to think beyond, it's time to think beyond Hamas or Qatar. And, Senator, to your point about, about the United States, in some ways, my, my friend Andy McCarthy, the former prosecutor, wrote a piece in which he said, look, we created Hamas to a large extent because we have funded uh, things that benefited Hamas. We have said these folks need a headquarters, give them a place to, you know, park their, you know, park their stuff. And so we, we own a piece, I guess, of both sides of this conflict. Is that right? Well, you do, and you do it geographically as well. I mean, when you when you encourage the opening of a political office under the Obama administration in Qatar, you know, as as sort of a middleman, now they spend the uh, the most recent decade um, funding and and getting, um, I, I guess, subterranean support for Hamas, and then when it goes to humanitarian aid in Gaza. While they may ostensibly build a hospital, we see that that's the generator for a hospital, why you would want to have one there, that's providing underground power for tunnels. They spend all their money, whether they say, oh, we need fuel, we need water, 
We need electricity. But they spend all of that money on rockets and tunnels. And it's just been build up after build up, and we've seen the devastation two months ago now, almost two months ago in uh, in Gaza, and it's just devastating. Fourteen hundred people dead. Um, lots of Americans included in this, look, including one of your constituents, right? Well, some North Carolinians and people with North Carolina connections. I've got you know pictures on our desk, and many people have seen the atrocities and some of the GoPro footage from the terrorists. And look, I'm grateful for. The, some have, that have been uh, released, that's good. But they can't, use, they can't allow this just to trickle out because that slows down Israel's quest for justice, which needs to happen. And I've seen, I've, look, they're operating under uh, the law of armed conflict. They're minimizing uh, humanitarian and, and collateral damage, Israel is, but not Hamas. They play by no rules. They're evil and, uh, and destructive. And that's why we can't allow Cutter uh, to talk out of both sides of its mouth. Senator, tell me this. How should we understand the fact that the Obama administration, with Joe Biden as number two, was, was aiding and abetting Hamas? Why was it that Obama was always so Muslim terrorist friendly over the years, negotiating with them, helping out Hamas? Why? Look, I just think it's a very different worldview than American strength. I think it's about, you know, you see an apology tour that comes from Obama uh, telling to different leaders when this is America. This is the strongest country in the world, but we have to do the things that make us strong. You have to behave like it. That's why this stuff, when you look at somebody that may have had a few mean tweets here and there, but you did not have any of this. Um, you didn't have North Korea. They quit testing missiles in North Korea. Uh, Russia wasn't invading Ukraine. China wasn't saber-rattling in the South China Sea against Taiwan and threatening to take it over. And you weren't seeing uh, Hamas invade Israel. So you had essentially world peace. Now, the left can hand-ring and say, oh, they don't like this style or that. But things were peaceful. Things were good. And gas was two bucks a gallon under, uh, under Trump. The world was stable. So it's a very different worldview when you can think about Trump's predecessor in Obama which is about American weakness, and Trump was about American strength. Is Joe Biden even capable of dealing from a position of strength? Because it seems as though he wants to just uh, appease the Iranians because he wants to deal with them. He, he, wants, he wants to negotiate with terrorists. He wants to free up funding for terrorist organizations like Hamas. Where is that going to take us just in the next 12 months? Well, I can tell you where it's taken us uh, just in the last month or two. And that's 80 attacks on uh, U.S. resources and uh, troops in Iraq, in Syria, um, and in the Middle East. And we can't have that. These are all through um, uh, Iranian proxies. Uh, and there, there's weak responses, four responses from uh, the Biden administration when there's been 80 attacks through Iran and its proxies. And it's been weak. And that's why it keeps going on and on and on. And Iran will always escalate in the face of weakness. Nothing, nothing brings global peace. If you want world peace, then I don't care if you're coming from the left or the right, but you've got to have a strong America if you want world peace. And that ain't happening under Biden. I get the impression that he's just not capable of it or whoever it is that's pulling his strings. And do you think that it is actually Joe Biden who are ma who's making these critical decisions? Or are those of us who say, no, it's somebody else, maybe even Obama doing it from behind the scenes? 
Well, I would say, look, let's go back to this. You and I and, and President Trump and most Republicans operate under the idea of American exceptionalism. We are different. By God's grace, we are different. I don't, I don't think much of the left, there's a few that do, to be fair, but I don't think this administration, uh, the Obama administration, believes that we are fundamentally different. And they are into this global averaging and dumbing down of our strength. And everything that they do is about weakness. Uh, to make us more on average and on par with the rest of the world. I want to be different because when you're strong, you can help others. And when you're weak, you can't. Senator Ted Budd is with me, Senator, because I thought the Wall Street Journal had a great little list this morning. They say you've got Obama rewarding hostage takers in 09 and 14 and 16 and then Biden in 22 and 23. We just keep rewarding people for taking hostages and I keep, well, I keep asking people, if you reward people for taking hostages, what do you think they're going to do? A 10-year-old could tell well, you, well, the, they're going to take more hostages, right? Well, look at the, look at the return ratio. And again, we, we thank God for the returned hostages. There's more to come perhaps in the next few hours. So this is wonderful news. But it's, when we get back innocent, innocent Israelis and other folks and a few Americans and some North Carolinians, we're grateful for that. But... In exchange, we give up three guilty ex-prisoners. Well, they're prisoners, and now we're releasing them that are, uh, that, you know, that, that are Palestinians. Three for um, one. I mean, yep. I mean nothing, I'm not, this is not about Palestinians. This is about Hamas. And, uh, and I would say we're, we're releasing them back, and they're going right back into the fight. They're putting the headband on, um, and they're going back and, and saying that they need to kill more that is Senator Ted Budd. Senator, thank you very much. I appreciate what you do for the great state of North Carolina. Back in a moment, we'll get to your calls. 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. president of the United States always knew where to put the blame. You have blamed mistakes of the past, and you blame the Congress. Does any of the blame belong to you? Yes, because for many years I was a Democrat. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Wednesday, live on the Radio Northwest Network, soon to celebrate 24 years of serving the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho with honestly provocative talk. And if you want to jump into the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. Uh, that's 866-439-5277, where naysayers always go to the head of the line. If you disagree with my point of view, I'm glad to let my audience hear your point of view, as long as you'll stick around for a few questions. You can also do it this way. You can answer our Twitter poll question. And here's the case that's made. Both Barack Hussein Obama and Joe Biden have been amazingly friendly to Muslim terrorists. And they have negotiated with Muslim terrorists. They've negotiated with terrorists in general. And they have rewarded terrorists who take hostages. And if you say, well, what do you suppose is going to happen if you give rewards in the millions or the billions of dollars to somebody who takes hostages? And the clear answer, the logical answer would be, they're going to take some more hostages because it pays so well. And here's the case that's laid out. Obama decided in 2009 as president, his first year as president, 
He paid $1.5 billion for the release of uh, three hostages, people who are taken in, in as hostages on the Iran-Iraq border. And then a few years later, he gave another reward for hostage-taking. In 2014, he gave up five top terrorist leaders in exchange for one sad sack army deserter by the name of Bo Bergdahl, who came back to the United States. It was a five-for-one deal. Today... Uh, the Hamas terrorist organization is being rewarded. They're getting three of their members back, three convicted criminals in exchange for each one of the hostages that's being released. And then Obama sent another reward for hostages in 2016. You know, his last year as pre last full year as president, he exchanged seven jailed Iranians for five American hostages and he threw 1.6 or sorry, 1.7 billion dollars into the deal. Now, that doesn't seem like a very good deal for us. In fact, I don't think it's a good deal for anybody who negotiates with terrorists. The minute you negotiate with them, they know they've got you. Because they say, uh, we take hostages, they pay us money. We take hostages, they release people from custody who are also terrorists, and we can let them go back to terrorism. So Joe Biden sent his first real reward hostage-taker message last year. He exchanged one American for one of the world's most renowned criminal kingpins sitting in prison. And then, of course, this year, he exchanged five people for $6 billion that he unfroze for the Iranians. And the Iranians, a few weeks later, were backing the terrorist attack that happened on October 7th. You cannot fail to see that connection. $6 billion gets unfrozen. The Iranians have a huge amount of additional money available to them. Why? Because Joe Biden's administration decided not to enforce sanctions and prevent uh, Iran from selling oil. And, of course, Joe Biden's actions in office have also helped boost up the price of oil. The calculated value of those two moves to the Iranians is about $50 billion. Do you think they're going to hold back on supporting terrorism? In the previous administration under Donald Trump, Iran was on its lips financially. They were down literally as a country to $15 billion in the bank. They, their, their cash flow had been cut off. Their oil sales had been cut off. They were subject to sanctions. And Trump had them at a point where they were going to have to negotiate. And what did Joe Biden do? He walks into office. He jacks around with American oil production. He cancels pipelines. He cancels leases. He causes the price of oil to start going up in the summer of 21. Not in 22 when the Ukraine war began. Joe Biden would like to have you believe that the cost of gas and cost of diesel went up in the year because of the Ukraine war. Well, that may have been a piece of it, but the prices began to increase about six or eight months earlier than that. Hamas is now getting three criminally convicted terrorists for every innocent hostage who's being returned and americans are being held hostage and you might have noticed that when joe biden took that one very short trip to jerusalem he flies into israel he gives a speech he sees a few people and he tells the palestinians i'm going to get the congress to give you a hundred million dollars now is that the way you communicate the message we don't tolerate terrorism is you have a terrorist attack in Israel, and a couple of weeks later, the President of the United States flies in, doesn't mention the Americans held hostage, doesn't talk about any of that, merely tells the Palestinians, oh, I'm going to bring you a whole stack of money.
exactly what Joe Biden and his former boss, Barack Obama, who's still probably calling the shots from behind the scenes, uh, exactly what they've been doing going all the way back to 2009. So for a decade and a half, Democrat presidents have been rewarding people for terrorist activity. So what do you think those terrorists are going to do? More terrorist activity. In any case, you can find today's Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Yesterday, I told you about a Seattle area middle school teacher who ordered her students to write up letters attacking Moms for Liberty in Washington State, a group that opposes some of the sexual indoctrination that's being done to kids about LGBTQ plus issues in school. So she write, she has them write letters telling these moms that by standing up for their kids and the kids in the community and saying, don't do this to the kids, that they're being bullied. And this teacher does that. I said, should we let teachers organize students in political messages aimed at parents? 97% of you joined me for a no vote. 3% naysayers. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson.